Well, if you have your Bibles this morning, I want to invite you to turn back to Proverbs chapter 20. We're going to be back in the book of Proverbs today. And uh, You know, we have been in Proverbs now for a while, and uh, we've taken a few little breaks from it, uh, special little things we wanted to do, but we've seen how vital Proverbs really is. The book of Proverbs is one of the key books uh, in all of the Bible. We have learned that in the book of Proverbs, really the theme of Proverbs is uh, a pretty simple little concept. Uh, It talks about a wise man versus a foolish man, and that'll cover the men. And then it talks about a strange woman versus a virtuous woman, that'll cover cover the women. Now we know that as you lay it out through the Word of God, you find that the strange women and the virtuous women are connected with Solomon's wives. And uh, we find that uh, not only that, but it's a picture of the church, which is a, uh, you know, is a, is a virgin. Uh, we know that the wise man or the foolish man is a picture of the nation of Israel uh, in, in type. But it's also a picture of men, and men today that uh, are wise and some that are foolish. The last month, as I told you earlier, we have taken a study uh, of the New Testament church based on the Old Testament a model that's found the church in the wilderness, which is the nation of Israel, which is also called a congregation, much like churches today. And we saw the balance last week of every church. Uh, there's going to be three types of people in, in any church. I don't care where you go. And we saw that that balance uh, is, is crucial within any church. We talked about the, <clears throat> the most important was the three families that we talked about last week and how their job was completely around the ark. And they never, never, never got away from the central thing that was Israel's whole relationship with God. And those three families represent the families of churches today that really are dialed into the ministry. And that uh, they're the focus is they understand uh, their own role within the church. They understand the church's role within their lives. They understand what God has called them to do. And, uh, you know, they, uh, they are the key people in any church. And Uh, You know, I don't care where you go, whether it's our church or any church in the world, you're going to find these three people group. Now, these people will be key people. And I mentioned the fact that you want, these are the kind of people you want to build in your church. Most pastors don't know how to build them. They don't understand the concept of these three. But uh, these three people, these three families here, and notice it's, it's dealing with families, because that's what makes any church strong, are families that are dialed in and doing what Um, God called them to do into the Bible. Then the second group was the 12 tribes themselves. They were a little bit farther out, and they circled every time they camped. They circled the uh, the ark. Uh, I gave you last week Bollinger's Companion Bible. He has a great little layout of that if you want to look it up and and see it. He's got some great illustrations. And they they make up the bulk of what you find in most churches. Good people. But they're not real grounded. They struggle with a lot of things. And I went through all of those things last week. And then you have the third group that was on the outer fringes of everything that was going on. And that was called the mixed multitude. I told you that the mixed multitude was the source of all of Israel's problems. The mixed multitude caused problems for the 12 tribes all through uh, the nation of Israel's history. But they never penetrated into the three families. There's never a time listed anywhere in the Bible where those three families ever stopped doing what God wanted them to do and had called them to do and doing their job. The mixed multitude just never penetrated where they were. And we talked about that. We talked about the pastor's job is to keep the balance in any church that you want to have the majority of the people, like the three families. You're always going to have the the 12 tribe people, you know, and you're always going to have the mixed multitude. And I gave you, oh, I don't know, seven or eight ways that a pastor keeps that mixed multitude to an absolute minimum. And it's crucial to see that. Uh, the, the, the mixed multitude will always look at the three families. And uh, uh, you need to know, people who don't do anything for God will always resent those of you who do. It's just that simple. And I've been in all my life, seen it all my life. You know, uh, people say, well, you know what, uh, your, your church has a click in it. Somebody says, well, you know, there's a hierarchy in your church. And they're absolutely right. I, I can't argue with that. 
But the click here and the hierarchy here are the people that are involved in ministry. I can't help that when you get in the Word of God and you get a relationship going with God, it just clicks. Okay, that's where that word comes from. Yeah, not use words you don't know where it comes from. I mean, I, <laughs> I do it all the time, but you're not going to do it. <laughs> we learned two great truths last week. And if you went out of here with nothing but these two, you learned something last week. I've seen it in my life, all my ministry, wherever I've been. And that those who do the least will always complain the most. And those who invest nothing will always cause the most problems. Because there's no investment. To so many people, church, the church that they go to doesn't mean anything to them. And so when the church does something for them, it's irrelevant. Uh, Pastor Dollar, I worked for Truman Dollar for many, 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 many years, and I, I learned a lot from him. And uh, I, 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 we didn't see eye to eye on a lot of things, uh, but he taught me a great a bunch of things, and he, and he was good to me. And he said something to me one time that I never forgot. And he was great uh, for all these little cliches, you know, that are so true in Christianity. And he said to me one time, and I can, I can hear him saying it now, he says, Bob, let me tell you something. He says, people will never, never... Never be thankful for what you did for them yesterday. All they want to do is want to know what you're going to do for them today. And that is so true of so many of God's people. They forget that the church has done for them, and all they care about is, what can I get out of it today? What are you going to do for me today? And, of course, that's a sad commentary on Christianity, but that's just the way it is. And I laid that out for four weeks because we're where we're going and what we're doing I want you to better understand and see how this all comes together. And uh, it better explains to you who want to be in the know, who want to learn and want to get everything together, <clears throat> you know, why things are the way they are in churches today and, and why things are the way they are wherever you go in Christianity. A wise man, out of the book of Proverbs, and this is how it goes together, a wise man <clears throat> will take what he gets and he'll apply what he learns and in time, he fulfilled for what God has saved him for to accomplish. In the Old Testament, we saw it in the three families in the church of the wilderness. They were dialed in. They never got outside the calling that God wanted for them, and neither did their families. In the New Testament, it'll be the New Testament local church that is based on the Bible, that teaches the Bible, that follows the principles, the models, and the patterns of the Bible, and, and how, it, how it all works. And the makeup of any church will be based on how the pastor <coughs> will lay out the Word of God uh, to his people and that helps keep the balance and will keep the mixed multitude to, uh, you know, an absolute, an absolute uh, minimum. And uh, when you uh, make this uh, the principles of your life and you make the Word of God and Proverbs your opinion, which is God's opinion, then, then you become a wise man. And the women in the church become virtuous women. And we have wise men in this church, and we have women who are very virtuous in their virtue of what they do for the Lord. When you don't do it, then the men become fools and the women become strange women. And they destroy whatever God's doing by their mouth, just like the strange woman does in Proverbs chapter 5 and Proverbs chapter 7. The model's set. Now this is why Proverbs are so vital to the Christian life. Proverbs, as I've said many, many times, is the mind of God. And Philippians chapter 2, verse 5 says that we are to let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. Now, I always like to start my sermon uh, for this week or next week by just recapping what I said last week because I try to tie everything together. And today, I want to look at our next set of verses. And uh, as I said earlier, we're going we're gonna to get into a little preaching today. I think it will be good for you. And we'll look at one of the greatest upcoming events that's on God's calendar. You know, God's got some things that are down the road here that are coming our way pretty quick. And uh, it's good to talk about them. It's good to preach about them. And I want you to take your Bible and turn to Proverbs chapter 20, if you haven't already there. And I want you to begin in verse 8, 9, and 10. Now, I'm going to start reading 6 and 7. We talked about that last time we were in Proverbs, but I want to add it in here just to give context to what I'm saying here so wherever I go, uh, you can see this thing. It says this, Most men will proclaim everyone his own goodness, but a faithful man who can find. The just man walketh as in integrity, his children are blessed after him. Now that's where we were at here in the last, last couple of weeks. 
A king that sitteth in the throne of judgment scattereth away all evil with his eyes. Who can say, I have made my heart clean? I am pure from my sin. Notice that's a question. Divers' weights and divers' measures, both of them are alike abomination uh, to the Lord. Uh, Bryce, would you stand up and ask God's blessing on the service this morning for me, please? Amen. Thank you, Bryce. Now, this passage will deal and tie into an event that's coming up where every unsaved man and every unsaved woman that ever lived is living today is going to have a chance to stand before God and do what Proverbs chapter 20, uh, verses 6, 7, 8, 9, and 10 say. They're going to have a chance to stand there and argue with God and prove to God that they didn't need Jesus Christ as their own personal Savior. That they could cover their own sin, that they made themselves clean, and there's a day coming where unsaved men and women are going to be able to try to do that, and I want to talk about that this morning based on Proverbs chapter 20 here. Now, this passage will deal with man's self-righteousness up against God's righteousness. And I want you to know, you may be here this morning and you don't know for sure you're going to heaven when you die. You may be here this morning and you're not sure where you're at in your own relationship with the Lord. But I want to tell you something. The number one problem that man is going to have is simply his unrighteousness up against God's righteousness. That rubs people the wrong way sometimes. You find people to get proud in their, in their self-righteousness and they, they reject the things of God and they reject His righteousness. There's coming a day There's coming a day when you're going to get your day in court, so to speak. There's coming a day when you're going to get to vocalize verbally that you think that your righteousness is as good as God's righteousness. And we're going to talk about that today as we come down through here. Now verse verse 9, verse 6 and verse 9 says that a man man proclaims his own goodness. You see it all the time. Uh, Verse 9 says, a man who says, I have made my heart clean. I am pure from my sin. Now, I want you to know that verse 9 is in the form of a question. It says, who can say that I have made my heart clean, that I am pure from my sin? And the answer to that is, nobody can. But people think they can. Now, this passage is dealing with the great coming judgment of God. And I want to preach to you this morning on the great white throne judgment that's found in Revelation chapter 20. The last couple of weeks, we had a, uh, we, you know, we learned how God will balance uh, uh, through the patterns uh, of, a, of the number three. How there's a number three in the Bible will always be the completeness of something. Along with that, there's another number that I want you to see and understand, and I know that most of you know this already, and that will be the number seven. Where number three will always represent the completion of something, number seven will always rem- represent the perfection of something. God in the Bible, uh, it's not a hard deal. Uh, we're going through Bible Institute uh, uh, right now, uh, uh, the, the third Sunday of the month, and I'm taking a, uh, a bunch of people through it and giving you a three-year program of really laying out the Word of God for you. This year, uh, we're going through the 17 sections of the Bible, so you can get the Bible down in a concise, complete way that once you learn each section and put it back together, you got the Bible. Starting next year, we're going to start what I call God's systematic theology. And that's coming through a system that God has put in His own Bible that is going to absolutely give you the theological teaching of the Word of God in a correct position of understanding how it all lays out. And it will all be built on the seven series of God in the Bible. God's theology is built on a system of sevens. And I'm going to begin to bring you through Years ago, there was a guy by the name of Schaefer, and he wrote what in Bible colleges and in most churches has become the standard for theological studies, and it was called Schaefer's Systematic Theology. I had a set years ago. I bought it because when I first got into ministry, everybody said, you had to get this. It was the most worthless money I ever spent in my life. There wasn't one thing in it that was ever related to any truth in the Word of God. 
It was a bunch of stuff that this guy had put together that the scholarly world all held up and reveled as something really great. But in truth, it had nothing to do with the Bible. And then through the process of time, I found God's systematic theology. And it's based on a series of seven. To give you a few of them. When you go through God's systematic theology, you want to learn your Bible, you find there's seven aspects to the Word of God. You need to learn what those seven are. You'll go through your Bible and God's systematic theology. You're told that God tells you there's seven things you're not to be ignorant of as a Christian. You know what I found? Those are the exact seven things that most of God's people are ignorant of. You want to commit suicide? I'll tell you how to do it right. There's seven suicides in the Bible. You don't want to mess that up. If you're going to go to those great lengths to do that, you want to get it right. Get it biblical. There's seven in the Bible. That's God's systematic theology. There's seven things after you get saved. You're not, you don't get saved and just stay there. The Bible says in, in God's systematic theology, there's seven things that you add to your faith. And most of God's people don't even know what they are. You know why? Because they're wasting time with Schaefer's systematic theology than getting into God's. God's perfect systematic theology will be built on a system of sevens. It's just that simple. When you got saved, you start to add these seven things to your walk with God, there's seven stages of your spiritual growth found in the Bible. Very clearly. Very clearly. You ought to be able to measure your spiritual growth by understanding these things. And it's, it's an incredible thing. You're going to find that you want to get married someday. There's seven marriages in the Bible. You ought to look at them. You ought to see them. You ought to understand it. God's people today just think they're going to get married and it's going to be happy thereafter. And it turns into Freddy Krueger on the terror of Elm Street. Book of Revelation. Think it's a hard deal, isn't it? It's not. It's not. There's seven sections to the book of Revelation. Just break the sections down. There's seven periods in church history. You want to study the history of the church? It's not hard. God broke it down systematically for you. There's seven days of the week. I'll tell you something. We teach you this. Many of you have been going through this right now, have been taught it. The day you got saved, there's seven things that changed about you the day you got saved. You know why you struggle with the things you struggle with now that you are saved? You don't even know what changed about you the day you got saved. You see, the whole aspect of Christianity has lost its meaning because nobody knows what it means. It's incredible. It's incredible. There's seven years in the tribulation period. When God took Noah and had him take all the animals into the ark, he took the unclean animals by two. He took the clean animals by seven. Most of God's people don't even know why. Uh, on and on it goes, all the way through the Bible. And you go through the Old Testament, the feast of the Old Testament nation of Israel are laid out in a pattern of seven months. Why? You go through the Bible and you want to you build a relationship with God? Okay, there's seven things that God hates. There's also seven things that God loves. There's also seven things that they rejoice over in heaven. And there's also seven things that please God. Now, how in the world do you have a relationship with God that means anything without God's systematic theology? You know what? Francis Schaeffer never touched on any of those. I don't know what he was doing, but he never got into the Bible when it came down to it. There's 12 apostles to the nation of Israel. Yeah, but when it came to the church, he gave them seven apostles. And most of God's people don't even know who they are. Don't even know who they are. There's seven great wakings that God brought across America from the time that America started when the, when, the, when the pilgrims got here in their Plymouth. I got here to Plymouth. Yeah, the pilgrims got here in the Plymouth, and way back in Acts 2, they all got, uh, got together in, a, in their accord. But David liked motorcycles because day of triumph was heard throughout the land. Now, when we get into your whole Bible, your whole Bible, if you want a perfect rendition of learning your Bible, as perfect as you can get it, the whole Bible is built on the seven series. When we get into next year, I'm going to talk about the seven mysteries. And I'm going to walk you through and lay out the seven mysteries for you. Then I'm going to bring you through the seven resurrections in the Bible. Then I'm going to bring you through the seven, seven uh, uh, baptisms in the Bible. Then I'm going to bring you through the system of seven sevens in the Bible that shows you the time of Christ's coming. And then I'm going to bring you to the last one, which is the seven judgments in the Bible. 
And you're going to find that when you study the seven judgments in the Bible, you have the judgment of you and me as a sinner at Calvary's cross. Then you have to, you, after you get saved, you have the judgment of you and me as a child of God, as God's son. And then when you get to the judgment seat of Christ, you're going to have the judgment of God on you and me as a servant. You see, the Christian life is just like this. There's three things that make it complete. You might know it would be three. Sinner, son, and servant. When you got saved, you were judged as a sinner. <clears throat> Once you got saved, now God judges you as a son. When you get to the judgment seat of Christ, He's going to judge you as a servant. How easy does it get? Well, it does when you get God's systematic theology to it. Then you have Israel's judgment going through the tribulation period. You have over there that someday that we're going to judge angels at, the, uh, at, at some point. Then you have the judgment of the nations at the second coming of Christ. And then you have the final judgment that we're going to talk about this morning based on Proverbs chapter 20 and other places in the Bible. And our text today will be based on uh, Revelation chapter 20 verse 11. We're going to go there in a minute. And Daniel chapter, nine verse, uh, Daniel chapter 7 excuse me, verses 9 and 10. And we're going to talk about the great white throne judgment. Now, look at verse 8 before you turn there in Proverbs chapter 20. Here's what it says. A king sitteth in the throne of judgment, scattereth away all evil with his eyes. One of the greatest studies that you'll ever take in the Bible will be the eyes of God. When you break God down, He breaks down into a number of incredible studies. Not after you study the eyes of God, I suggest you go back and study the eyelids of God. Then I go back and study the wink of God. They're incredible. You know, one of the greatest studies in the Bible will be the eyes of God. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12 through 13 says, For the word of God is quick and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even the dividing asunder of the soul and spirit, and that a joints and the marrow, and is the discerner of the thought and the, intarts, uh, in, in the intents of the, of the heart. Neither is there any creature that is not manifest in his sight, but all things are naked and open unto the eyes. See that thing? The eyes of him we have to do. The eyes of God are the greatest study in the Bible. And one day when the great white throne comes and he sits on that throne and we're going to look at him in it, his eyes are going to scatter all evil. Well, that's going to be someday. Proverbs chapter 5 verse 21 says, For the ways of man are before the eyes of the Lord, and he pondereth all his goings. Ecclesiastes chapter 12 verse 14 says, For God shall bring every work into judgment with every secret thing, whether it be good or evil. Job chapter 34 verse 22 says, There is no darkness or shadow of death where the workers of iniquity may hide themselves. Job chapter 28 verse 24 says, For he, uh, for he looketh to the ends of the earth and seeth under the whole heaven. He scatters evil with his eyes in that day. The day God sits on the throne and his eyes scatter away all the evil before him. Now let's look at Revelation chapter 20. Get that in one hand. And Daniel chapter 7, verse 9 in the other. Here's what it says. And I saw a great white throne, and him that sat on it, from whose face the earth and the heaven fled away. And it was found no place for them. And I saw the dead, small and great, stand before God, and the books were opened. And another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged out of those things which were written in the books according to their works. And the sea gave up the dead which were in them, and death and hell delivered up the dead which were in them, and they were judged every man according to their works. And death and hell were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death. And whosoever was not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. Now look over Daniel chapter 7. Daniel chapter 7, if you don't have it marked, will be the companion passage to Revelation chapter 20 that I just read and vice versa. And I beheld till the thrones were cast down, and the Ancient of Days did sit. That's the Lord. That's God. He's called the Ancient of Days. And the Ancient of Days did sit, whose garment was white as snow, and the hair of his head like pure wool. His throne was like the fiery flame, and his wheels as a burning fire. A fiery stream issued and came forth from before him. Thousands, thousands ministered unto him. Ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. The judgment was set and the books were opened. There it is. There it is. Now this is the most terrible judgment that an unsaved man or an unsaved woman is ever going to be up against. 
Now, I know that this goes against what you're normally taught because I know that you and I aren't going to be judged of this judgment, but I want to say this too. In one, in one respect, this is also going to be the t- most parable judgment for God's people, and I'll explain why here in a little bit. But uh, it, for unsaved people, it's incredible. You know, most religions, most people, most, most, most religions, most people I talk with, some way, some shape, or form, they believe there's going to be some final accounting of things, some final judgment. They don't get it like the Bible, but everybody knows that sometime, someplace, you're going to have to give an account of something. And the fact that, uh, uh, you know, some of, someday that you're going to give an account to a higher power. Uh, verse 10 says, uh, diverse weights and diverse measures, uh, uh, both are alike uh, abomination to the Lord. So people read that, and to get the idea that the final judgment is going to be like a big set of scales. And you're going to come up there, and God's going to put all of your life, He's going to all put all your good works on this side and all your bad works on this side. You know how it goes. If your good works outweigh your bad, then you go to heaven. If your bad works outweigh, you go to hell. And uh, that's how most people think of it. But that's not how it's going to work. I'm going to tell you how it's going to work. Now, I don't believe there's a set of scales up there, but let's just say for a moment there was. And if there was a set of scales up there, here's how it's going to work. He's going to put you in this side and Jesus Christ in this side, and he's going to weigh out. And you're going to come up short. You're going to come up short. Then you got the folks that they just laugh at the whole idea of a final judgment. You know, you see folks uh, go through life, and, and uh, they're lost. They, they, they seemingly have great lives. And that bothers a lot of God's people. They see somebody that they know they're unsaved and seemingly they're happy. Seemingly they got all they want. They got all the money they want. They can do whatever they want. They buy a lot. They're happy. They got all of the things. And it appears on the outside that they're just going along through life fine. Sometimes God's people look at that and see that and it bothers them because they think that because, because you're unsaved that you have to be unhappy. Well, you can mask your unhappiness with a lot of things temporarily. You can mask your unhappiness by buying yourself stuff. You know, there's God's people that get depressed and they have tough times and things in life. And what they, they never go to the Bible. When they want to feel better, they go buy something new. And for a while, it makes them feel good. I got a new car. I got a new this. I got a new that. And for a while, it makes you feel better. But it's only temporary. What you need is something in your life that will, once you get it, it'll never let you go. That's what you need. One time an old evangelist was preaching across the middle Midwest here, oh, about a hundred years ago or so. And he was in this little town somewhere in the Midwest, and he was just preaching his heart out every night. And he was just putting that thing out and, and laying out the Word of God. He was preaching on God's judgment. He's preaching on heaven. He's preaching on hell. He was just getting to it. And people were getting saved and a real revival came. There was a man in this town who basically, I guess every town's got one of them, who owned the town. He was the richest man in the town. He had more acres. He had a big old farm. He had thousands and thousands of cattle. He had hundreds of thousands of acres. And he had everything he could want and he was as lost as could be. But to keep up the social status, he went to that preaching service every night. Sat right in the front row. And that old preacher just preached his heart out all week long. And he preached about God's judgment and heaven and hell and love of God and salvation. And that old boy just sat there. After a seven-night revival campaign with all kinds of people getting saved, the last night he preached, and the old boy at the end of that service came up, lost as could be. And he said, Preacher, he says, I got a question for you. I've been here every night. I've heard you preach the sermons every night. And he says, I want you to know, I don't believe one thing that you said. I want you to know that, uh, I, and I got a question for you. You talk about God's judgment and, and the travesty of life and all the problems, the sin of this world. He says, I'm not a believer and I'm not going to become a believer. But I want to tell you, I listened to everything you said all week long. And here it is in September. Harvest time. I got more cattle that I'm going to make a boatload of money off of uh, next month when I sell them. I got sheep. I got, I got everything. My barns are full of grain and wheat, and I'm going to sell it, and I've got everything I could want. And here it is, September, and I heard what you preach. How do you explain, based on what you preach, 
why I have what I have. That old preacher never missed a second. He just looked at him and he said, you know what, pal? It's because God doesn't settle accounts in September. He'll take care of it. And sometimes you see people go through life that are lost and they seemingly are happy and they have everything. I think George Bernard Shaw, when he died, they found a Bible that somebody had given him and he had wrote in the flyleaf of that Bible that this is the most undesirable book that I have ever had. Someday I simply must get rid of it. He was an atheist all his life. And yet that old boy lived to be like 95, 96 years old. You see, it always doesn't catch up with you in this life. That's something you need to remember. God doesn't always settle accounts in September. He'll take care of it. He'll take care of it. And, uh, oh, oh, you know, what a judgment that's going to be. I'm going to tell you something. If you're unsaved here, if you're unsaved and you're lost here this morning, this is as close to heaven and this earth as you're ever going to get. So you might as well enjoy it. And if you're saved this morning and you're on your way to heaven, this is as close to hell as you're ever going to get. So don't enjoy it. Or enjoy it. I don't care. And I'm telling you, oh, what a judgment that's going to be today. God with his eyes scattereth all the evil. Revelation chapter 20 verse 11 says, And I saw a great white throne. When I look at that and think about that, I see a throne so big that it covers the whole present size of the universe. And there, there he sits on the throne. There is the Ancient of Days. There's the eyes of a burning fire. There's the one that men and women have laughed at and scoffed about all of their lives and set their own goodness up and their own self-righteousness up. Now they're going to stand before a holy God. The Bible says that heaven and earth flee away. You're standing in space, nothing under your feet. Nothing over your head, held up by the almighty power of God that you rejected all your life. And now God's eyes scatter away all evil. Heaven and earth flee away and there's no place for you to hide. That's going to be someday. That's going to be someday. The Bible says, I saw the dead, small and great, stand before God and the books were opened. And another book was opened, which was the book of life. And the dead were judged out of those things which were written in the books. The Bible says, and I saw the dead, small and great. You're going to have the people down there on the street today that you're passing hot dogs and tracks out to who reject you that have nothing in life. You're going to have every president, every king, every queen, every monarch down through history that rejected Jesus Christ as their own personal Savior. You're going to have every religious leader. You're going to have every great political leader. You're going to have every great philosopher standing there. Oh, Almighty God. And the Bible says, and the books were open. All 66 of them. Hey, Daniel chapter 7 verse 10 says, 10,000 times 10,000 stood before him. The judgment was set and the books were open. The same book God has given you to judge your sins and yourself right now, to see yourself as a sinner. And then cleanse yourself every day by God's Son to keep yourself right with Him. That same book that has all of the judgments in it that God has given you and me now to judge ourselves today. God's going to take and judge an unsaved man and an unsaved woman with. And they'll stand before God and His eyes will scatter away all evil. His eyes will scatter away all evil. 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 15 and 17 says, The word of God is a sweet savor unto God. To one it's a sweet savor unto life, and the other it's a sweet savor unto death. In other words, that book's a two-edged sword, Hebrews chapter 4. It will cut you either way. It'll either cut you loose from your sins, or it'll cut you loose from God and send you to the lake of fire. Verse 13 says, And the sea gave up the dead which were in it. And death and hell delivered up the dead which were in them, and they were judged, every man, according to their works. The sea gave up the dead. <laughs> How many times in the Navy prayer book, when they're burying somebody at sea, they use this as the sea someday will give up their dead. Let me tell you something. That sea there isn't anything in the Atlantic Pacific Ocean. 
that she up there defined for you in Isaiah chapter 27, verse 1, Genesis chapter 1, and many other places. And this is all the demonic activity, the unclean spirit, the devil, the fallen angels that are in that great deep that someday will come along with every unsaved man and they will stand before God and they too will be judged. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 3 tells you and me that someday we had to use the Bible now. We had to use the Bible to deal with every problem in life that we have. You know why? Because he says, why don't you deal with the issues in your church now with the Bible? Don't you know that someday you as Christians are going to judge angels? We're going to be there. We're going to take the same principles of the Word of God that God has, and we're going to judge the unsaved world, and we're going to judge the unsaved angels and all of that crowd. The same book that you ought to take in your life right now and deal with every matter that you have to make a judgment in. One time in Matthew chapter 8, verse 29, Jesus cast out a demonic spirit out of, a, out of somebody. And, uh, uh, that, and he, he, the demon said to Christ, We know who you are. Why do you come to torment us before our time? There's a time coming they're going to get it. Revelation chapter 20. Bible says death and hell. That'll be all the unsaved people. Death will be the fact that people died and hell will be the holding place for them. Most people don't understand the difference between hell and the lake of fire. And I'll try to give you an easy explanation for it as, as, as I have to understand it in an easy way. Right now, if you're lost and you're without Christ and you die, you go to hell. And you stay in hell till you get to the great white throne judgment. And then God will bring you up at that judgment, and you're going to stand before him. And I'm going to tell you how it's going to go here in just a moment. I'm going to play it out for you. Now, what's going to take place is you're going to stand there before God, and, and then you're going to be judged. And when you're judged, then you're going to be dumped into the lake of fire for all of eternity. Now, here's how you put it together. Look at hell like the county jail. Look at the lake of fire like the state pen or federal penitentiary. Here's how it works. Right now, if you commit a crime, and they, they, you're gonna, they put you in the county jail downtown where we drive by with the hot dogs and waving them up there in the little windows. You go to the county jail. You stay there until you get your court date. When you go before the judge, he passes sentences on you, and in most cases, you go to the penitentiary to serve your service. That's how it is. The, lake, the, the hell is like the county jail. You go there till you get your trial date. When you go to trial, you get your sentencing. You go to the penitentiary, the lake of fire for all of eternity. That's how you remember it. Not hard. Not a hard concept at all. But you know what? I look at that, and I think about that, death and hell, delivering up the dead which are in them. You know, some of those people have been in hell for four, five, six thousand years. I mean, they're brought up to this thing, you know, with a moment of respite out of the torment of hell, Luke chapter 16. And they're standing there before Almighty God, and His eyes coming down as a burning fire, scattering away all evil, discerning the thoughts and intents of the heart. And boy, I'll tell you what, they're standing there, they're standing there with the filth of their unrighteousness. They've been in hell for a hundred years, a thousand years, with a burning smell and the smoke of brimstone off their body, standing before a holy God, looking up into Him. My God, what a day that's going to be. Amen. I'm telling you something. I'm telling you something. And now those eyes as a burning fire, scattering all the wickedness, looking right down into your eyes, into your very soul. That's going to be a day. I've had people that I witnessed to and talked to or people who didn't care anything about God and I have a burden for them, want them to get saved. But you know what? There comes a time when you quit feeling sorry for people like that. When you really understand what God has all done for you. I'm going to be very honest with you. I get tired of people using my God's name in vain. I'll witness to you. I'll try to help you. But I want to tell you something. It makes me mad. He never done anything wrong to me, only done good in my life. And I don't appreciate somebody dragging his name through the mud. I have to hold myself back sometimes for saying stuff. Sometimes I don't do a very good job of holding myself back. One time Mel and I were preaching down in Bridgeport, Ohio. And a guy by the name of Bill Eakin went with us. And Bill was an incredible guy. Big, long, lanky guy. He'd break in half. But just the nicest guy on the planet. <coughs> we stopped at a a little restaurant cafe down there to get something to eat before we went to preach. And me and Mel and, uh, and uh, Bill was sitting there. And over here, 
uh, was about four or five farmers, you know, and truck drivers and everything, and they were just cussing up a storm. They were, they, were, they were using God's name in vain. They were laughing and all that stuff. Just rowdy guys. You know how it is. Bridgeport's a river town, man. It's a tough place. So we got ready to leave to go to church to preach, and Bill said, uh, here, Mel, you, here's my money. He says, go ahead out, guys. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to take care of some business here. And so he walks over to these guys, and he says, guys, he says, I just wanted you to know. I, said, I heard you talking about a friend of mine. And he says, you got some bad information someplace, and I just want to tell you. And they're looking up at each other, and they say, well, we don't even know you. What, what friend do you have that we know? And he says, the Lord Jesus Christ. Heard you talking bad about him. And I want you to know he's the greatest friend I ever had. And he'll be your friend. And he gave each one of them a track. Now, I'm over here, just a young Christian. I think we're all going to be martyred and killed, and I'll be in Fox's <laughs> Book of Martyrs in the next chapter, you know. <clears throat> Now, one of those guys said a word. They thanked him for those tracts, and they apologized for talking bad about the Lord Jesus Christ. I want to tell you something. That's the kind of courage we need in Christianity today. But the Bill Eakins aren't found but today. They really aren't. And I'll tell you, uh, that's going to be a day, boy, when some of those guys come up there that have shot their mouth off. You know there's guys went through their whole life asking God to damn everything, and that day God is going to bring their wish who, and God's going to damn them. I had a guy say one time, well, I'll be damned. Yeah, you will. You will. You will. God will look right down. Those eyes will scatter your sin, and you will be damned. No question about it. I, I go through the Bible. You imagine what it would be like when old Judas comes up there, sold him out. I mean, Judas thought it was really neat when he got the 30 pieces of silver, and even though he would can a little later and threw it away, but he wanted to sell him out. Can you imagine him standing there and looking at the eyes of God now faced with that judgment? I mean, it's incredible. I think old Caiaphas, old Caiaphas, you know, he had him slapped. He had him beaten. Couldn't you imagine old Caiaphas looking up there and, and looking at those eyes? And about that time he stands up there, you know, and he's looking up there and God's looking down at him. And all the host of the 10,000 that are ministering, all the Christians from the church age, there'll be some old Waldensian over there saying out of the crowd, Hey, Caiaphas, hey, back in the day you had him spit on. Back in the day, you had him whipped. Back in the day, you slapped him. Why don't you run up and slap him now? <sighs> hey, boy, where are you going? I'll tell you where he's going. He's running off saying, rocks falling us, mountains covered from the face of the Lamb, for the day of his wrath has come, and who shall be able to stand? Nobody. Nobody. Why? Proverbs 20, verse 8. The king sitting on the throne. Of his judgment. Incredible. Proverbs chapter 20 verse 9 says, In that day, who can say, I have made my heart clean. I am pure from my sin. Who will be able to say, I can stand on my own before Almighty God at the great white throne judgment. Now I know you don't know what I'm about to tell you. Most of you. Maybe some of you older guys do. But it's not called a judgment for no reason at all. It's a courtroom. And if you go through your Bible, you're going to figure out and find out that uh, uh, Romans chapter 3, verse 4, and Zechariah chapter uh, 3, verse 1, other places in the Bible, gives the indication that you are going to get to stand before Almighty God and put your righteousness up against His Son. Zechariah chapter 3, verse 11, puts it into a courtroom scenario. Where you're, the unsaved man is standing before God, making his case. And the Bible says the devil's standing at the right hand as a prosecuting attorney. You're going to try to tell God what it was, and the devil's going to step up. Because the devil knows he's damned, and he wants to take you with him. And he's going to stand there in your right hand, and everything you're going to say, he's going to tear it apart. Everything you try to justify, everything you ever did, every good work, everything you ever did you thought was going to make you clean before God, he is going to destroy just like some prosecutor in a courtroom before the judge. And you're going to have to be your own defense. Now, I'm not going to the great white throne judgment to be judged. I'll be there, but I'll be judging. But let me put a little scenario for you why you need to get saved. If I would go to the great white throne judgment and I'd come up there, I wouldn't say a word. 
you know, you know, you know what they always tell you, Darren. You know this is true. Let your don't say anything. Let the lawyer. That's what you're paying him for, right? That's right. So I stand up there, and the devil starts to just rail on me before God Almighty, and God's looking down. You know, did you do that? You said that. Now, boy, he's just going town on me. I ain't saying a word. And about when he's all done and the Lord says, well, what do you got to say for yourself? My lawyer stands up. The Lord Jesus Christ. And he says, Father, uh, he may have done all those things, but I took care of it for him and there's no case here at all. I put it under the blood. God looked down at me, looked at the devil, looked at the, my, my attorney, slapped that gavel down and says, case dismissed. <laughs> you know what happened when I got saved? My case got dismissed. I'll tell you what you need today. You need your case dismissed. <laughs> That's going to be a day, boy. You got to stand up there and justify yourself before God? No, you can't. And I'll tell you something else. Your priest can't either. I'll tell you something else. Your religion can't either. Your good works can't do it either. There's only one thing that you can do. Get it covered by the blood. Amen. You know, I... I, I I, over the years, and this is one of the things I, I, I feel that some of you all of you have missed to some degree or the other growing up in the time that you did. I got to hear, <clears throat> and I wrote them down. I got about 30 or 40 of them. I wrote them down, the great testimonies of how some of the last of the Philadelphian preachers got saved and what God did in their life. You don't hear it anymore today. You just don't. It's so effeminate today. It's unbelievable. We had a guy back there that uh, I, I never knew him. He died before I, I got saved, but Mel used to talk him all the time. His name was Phil Ward. And Phil Ward was a great preacher. But back in the 20s, Phil Ward in Canton, Ohio. Canton, Ohio was a big underground uh, mafia town. And Phil Ward was a gangster. And you know how gangsters have uh, rabble wars back and forth? And uh, somebody had witnessed to him, and somebody had told him the story of Grant, and he rejected it. And one day he got in a shootout, and he got about four, four or five machine gun bullets in his stomach, laying in a street in Canton, Ohio. And he told this story. He says, I'm laying there, and he says, I know I'm going to die. And he says, he says, I can hear the sirens coming. And he says, uh, all my buddies around me are dead. And he says, laying there, all I could think about was that track that somebody gave me and a witness they gave me that I needed to be saved. You know what? God spared his life. He got saved, and he turned into one of the greatest preachers you ever saw. Gave his whole life to the things of God. I think old Bill Denton, who knows who Bill Denton is? Bill Denton was one of the great preachers up in Akron, Ohio. I remember when he died. I heard him give his testimony of how he got saved. He was in World War I, and he was lost as could be. And his mama used to witness to him and try to take him to church, and he wanted nothing to do with it. But his mama prayed for him every day. He used to say the last thing I'd see at night and the first thing I'd hear in the morning was my mama on her knees getting my, getting, praying for my soul. And he says, it, he says, I went away in World War I and joined the army. And he says, I was over there in one of those battles. And he says, we were making a charge of making an advancement. And a shell went off and it just knocked me unconscious. And he said, I was fully conscious and I was fully aware. And he said, I was, I was laying there. And he said, I laid there for seven or eight hours. And he says, pretty soon I heard people coming. I couldn't move. I couldn't move my eyes. I was just in sunshine of shock trauma and he says the next thing I know they're picking me up and they put me on a pile of dead bodies to be picked up he says I was on that pile of bodies for two days just waiting for somebody to come I couldn't cry out I couldn't move and he says for those two days I remembered every prayer my mama prayed I remembered my, my indifference to God and God's salvation. And he says, for two days I laid there and I, I, I cried out to God the best way I could oh God help me and he says, on the end of the second day, a bunch of corpsmen came by to pick up the dead bodies. And we're going to put them in a hole and bury them. And as he walked over, he was laying on his back down uh, on that pile with his arms stretched out. Couldn't move. One of those corpsmen were picking up the bodies and looked over. And he saw a tear running out of his eye. He went over there and he was alive. He got him to a hospital. He survived. Became a great preacher for God. You see, those are the real things of salvation. Not your hangnail. 
not I fell down the steps getting to the Wild Willies on a Friday night and God worked that through me. There's only one thing going to get you through, folks, just the blood. Back in World War II in the Pacific, the Japanese could mimic Americans' talk and fool Americans all the time. And they would call out, hey, help me, help me. And somebody would go out to help them and they would kill them. They were very good at it. And they were very good at, at mimicking the passwords. So in the military, they picked passwords that the Japanese could not say clearly. There are certain words that a, a Japanese accent would always be on. You, you could tell. You couldn't, you couldn't pronounce it cleanly. There was an old boy that was in the army. And, and again, like Bill Denton, he was a long way from God, not saved. And his mama, oh, he was saved. And he was out of fellowship with God. He was terribly out of fellowship with God. His mama and daddy prayed for him. He went away in the army, got sent over there. He got separated one night in a battle. And he was out there for a couple of days, and he was filthy. He was mud from head to toe. You couldn't tell him from Japanese. And it was about, dawn, about dusk, and he started he come, started coming back to his lines. And he, he'd been out for two days, and, and, and the sentries yelled for him to halt. And they said, give me the password. Well, he didn't know what the password was. He didn't know what the password was. And so he tried to explain to them. He said, pal, and he heard nine safeties go off them M1 Grand, which you can hear very clearly. And he says, you don't get the password, you're dead. Well, he didn't know what to do. He'd been under great, great, great burden because he knows he's out of fellowship and he knows God is doing this in his life because of mom and dad's prayer. And so he asked the guy, he says, oh, he says, oh, he says, I, I, I am an American, I'm an American. And they said, you don't have the password, you're dead. He fell on his knees, and he got right with God, not 50 yards from where they were going to kill him. And he says, oh, God, you know I'm out of fellowship with God. I know I'm out of fellowship. You know I'm out of fellowship. God, I'm sorry. I, I, I didn't. I took your salvation free. And he says, now here I am, and I deserve what I'm about to get. And they don't believe me, and I know they're going to kill me. And God, all I can say, he's getting louder, all I can say, Lord, is when this happens and I die, remember, I'm under the blood. Heard nine safeties go on. The guy yelled out, come on in. That's the password. And when you get to that judgment, and we all walk up there, Christ remembers the password. You're under the blood. It's the blood. The only thing that will get you through is the blood. What shall wash away my sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Oh, what a day that's going to be. The Bible says in verse 14 and 15, And death and hell but cast into the lake of fire. And this is the second death. You see, you died the first time physically. The second death is you die in hell eternally, spiritually. And whosoever is not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. You know, you get a second birth that puts you into heaven, and then you get a second death that puts you into hell. And you get to choose. You get to choose. Believe me, the most terrible word, the most terrible word, in the English language, and then a man will hear the most terrible word will be Matthew 25, 41. Depart from me, ye cursed into everlasting fire and brimstone, prepare for the devil and his angels. The day God on his throne scattereth all wickedness with his eyes. And you know the most terrible part about hell, honestly? The most terrible part about hell and going to hell is you don't have to go there. That verse in Matthew chapter 25 tells you that hell was never prepared for you. It was prepared for the devil and his angels. But there's some folks that just have to go there. They're going to choose to go there. All your life, you've turned your back on him. Now on this day, he turns his back on you. The Bible says that God is not willing that any perish, but all should come to repentance. But I want to tell you something. The most terrible aspect to this great judgment, you never hear preached on. Nobody even knows it. In the world of Christianity we live in today, God's people couldn't even deal with it. We think of God as some big old cushy marshmallow up in the sky, some grandfather long beard that just is on his knees waiting for you to come to Christ. You've got the wrong picture of God. He's a righteous God sitting on a throne of righteousness. He gave you his love through his son, Jesus Christ. And when you reject it and put your own righteousness above his son's, <laughs> you're in trouble. You know what the most terrible aspect of the judgment of God is? It's the laughter of God. It's the laughter of God. 
We live in a Christian world today that can't even fathom the fact that God's going to send somebody to hell and laugh at them and drop down into the lake of fire. That's so foreign to us because God is so foreign to us. Psalms chapter 2, verse 4 and 5 says that he that sitteth in the heaven shall laugh. The Lord shall have them in derision. He shall speak unto them in his wrath and vex them with his sore displeasure. Proverbs chapter 1, verse 24 through 32 says, Because I have called and ye have refused. I have stretched out my hand and no man regarded. But ye have said it not all my counsel and with none of my reproof. I also will laugh at your calamity. I will mock you when your fear cometh. And when your fear cometh as desolation and your destruction cometh as a whirlwind. When the destruction and anguish cometh upon you. Then shall they call upon me and I will not answer. They shall seek me early but shall not find me. For they hated knowledge and did not choose to fear the Lord. And they would none of my counsel and despise my reproof. Therefore shall they eat of the fruit of their own way and be filled with their own devices. For the turning away of the simple shall slay them. And the prosperity of fools shall destroy them. We say, he that laughs, laughs, laughs best. We say, oh, I got the last laugh. Well, I want to tell you something. At this great white throne judgment, God gets the last laugh. <coughs> you laughed and made fun of him all of your life. Now he'll return the favor in that most terrible moment. As you stand before God. And you try, here's where the laughter comes from. I want you to get this. You're going to stand before God and you're going to try to justify your own self, tell him you're good, tell him that you have taken care of your own sin. Jesus Christ is going to be standing right there by that throne and you're going to try to convince the whole universe that you're as good as Jesus Christ. And when you do that, all the assembled universe. God himself is going to break into laughter because there's nothing funnier than you and me saying I'm as good as Jesus Christ. What a day that's going to be. You don't hear messages on us anymore. You won't. You go wherever you want to go. I don't care. You're saying you're being negative. That's me. I may be negative, but I'm telling you the truth. You will not find it anywhere. Nobody will preach it. Nobody will tell you about the laughter of God that is coming. And yet I'm telling you, my friend, it's coming. It's coming. It's coming. I'll tell you what, you stand there before Almighty God and you stand there, boy, but that power holding you up, nothing under your feet, nothing under, not holding you up, and all of a sudden God takes away that power and down you fall. And the last thing you hear the last thing you hear, you drop into that lake of fire. There's a universe rolling with laughter that you thought you and your righteousness could be as good as Jesus Christ. In the silent midnight watches, heart thy bosom's door. Someone knocking, 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 knocking evermore. Say not, tis thy heart by pulse beating. For it is thy heart of sin, and thy Savior knocking, crying, soul arise, and let me in. Death comes on with reckless footsteps to palace, home, or hut. Think you death will tarry knocking where your door is shut? Jesus standing, waiting, knocking, but your sinful heart stands fast. Grieved away, your Savior leaveth, then death comes in at last. Then you will be standing, begging Christ to let you in, beating at the gate of heaven, covered with your sin. God forbid, you guilty sinner, heaven is not your lot. Jesus waited long to know thee, but now he knows thee not. That's going to be a day. That's going to be a day. Someday it's all going to be over. For an unsaved man, unsaved woman, spend an eternity in a lake of fire. For some of your unsaved friends. I, I said earlier that this is terrible for an unsaved person, but also for God's people. You know why? Because this is why you're going to have to stand there judging with Christ and send some of your friends to hell that you never witnessed to. 
There are going to be parents that are going to have to condemn their own kids to the lake of fire because they never told them one time about the Christ. There are going to be wives that have to stand there and condemn their husbands. Husbands condemning their wives. The people you work with, the people you, you, you hang out with, your friends that you're, you never took one moment of time. Now you'll stand there, they'll look at you, and they'll say, why? Why, Bob? Why didn't you tell me? Why? Why didn't you tell me? I'd have listened if you'd have told me. You, you were supposed to be my friend. We did everything together. Why? Why, why did you not tell me? Years ago, I had a guy, we had a Bible study that ran probably four or 500 people. You ought to remember. The guy would come into Bible study. He'd sit in the back. I watched him for about six months. Every time I'd start to give the invitation, he'd break down and weep, and he'd cry, and he'd get up, and he got out. He'd leave. After about six or seven months, he came every, every was that Monday night or Thursday night? Monday Every, every night we had it. So one night I, I, I had somebody else come up and close out and I beat around the back. And I caught him as he went out the door. His name was Ralph. And I said, Ralph, I said, I, I've watched you now for months. I said, I'll watch you get right up to the invitation. And he says, then you, you run out and you're always crying. I said, Ralph, God will save you. He says, preacher, you don't understand. I said, well, I want to understand. I want to help you. Come on to my office. He told me the saddest story I ever heard in my life. He said, you know what, preacher? He said, 10 years ago, he says, I met this little gal, and we dated, and she was a wonderful little gal. And uh, you know what? She, uh, we got married. And after we got married, you know, she, she got witness to at work, and she wanted to go to church. She wanted to find out about God. And he says, I wouldn't go. And he says, I made fun of it. And he says, I wouldn't take her. She didn't go because I didn't go. And he said, I just never, 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 never took her to church or went to church. He says, three years ago, she died. And she said, preacher, she's in hell right now because of me. Tears began to run down his face. And he says, I come here and hear the gospel. And he says, I want to get saved. But he says, I'm not going to. He said, preacher, if you think I'm going to go to heaven while I sent my wife to hell, I'm not going to do it. And he got up and he left. Never came back. Oh, it's going to be a rough day, folks. It's going to be rough for you. It's going to be rough for me. When I was growing up, I was just a little kid. My next-door neighbor, his name was Mr. Anthony. He was an old German guy. He was married. His wife's name was, can't even remember what it was now, but they were good to me. I used to go over and sit on his porch when I was a little guy. He used to have a collie. His uh, name was Duchess. And he was, you know, he, he'd drink beer over there, you know, and smoke cigars. And I grew up with him. I grew up sitting on the porch. He made me my first goat little cart that raced down the hill. I used to go spend hours with him in his garage. I'd play with the dog, and we'd sit there and talk, and he'd tell me about the old country. He'd tell me about our neighborhood when it was still farms and everything. I grew up, I grew up, I grew up, uh, you know, uh, just uh, we'd fix him dinner and take it over to him, you know, and things like that. His wife died, and, you know, he was all by himself. And uh, he didn't have anybody. The Duchess died. The dog died. And we had a little beagle. And that little beagle, he loved that little dog. And I, uh, I'd get up to go to work in the morning, and I'd let the dog out. And he gave me a key to a side door. And I'd go over and let the, let the dog in. And that dog would run upstairs and jump in bed with him. He loved that little dog. He bought his food. He had his toys. And that dog was as much his as it was mine. Well, he got to be old. He was old, you know, and, uh, but I, he was still going around. But he had a boy who really didn't care much for him. And that boy one day came by and said, Dad, I'm going to put you in a rest home. We're going to get you out of here. going to put you in a rest home. And he says, I'm going to be back in four or five hours. We're going to get up everything, and we're going to take you down there. I got it all done. That morning, I was leaving to go down to the place where I used to hunt turtles and all that stuff, you know, go down there to that swamp area. I told you some of you about. And I remember driving around the corner, and I saw Mr. Anthony walking around the side of the thing there, and I honked at him, and he waved at me, and I waved back at him, and I went on down there. I came back about three or four hours later, and a little neighbor girl came down the street running. 
She says, Mr. Anthony's dead. And I said, what do you mean Mr. Anthony's dead? She says, he's dead. He, he, they took him away in an ambulance. He's covered up. He's dead. She was crying. Oh, I immediately panicked, and I called his boy, and his boy wouldn't tell me anything. He said, I just can't talk right now. I just can't talk right now. I went into the house, and I had a key to a side door. I went down to, I went down to back steps, and there was all of his tools, all of the dog food, the water pans with a little note that said, please take care of my little dog for me. I went over to the side door and went in. I walked upstairs and he had all of his clothes, dress clothes laid out on the bed. I walked downstairs and an old moment that I saw, I saw the bullet hole in the wall with the blood stain coming down all over the couch. You see, he wasn't going to let his boy send him there, so he took his pistol and he shot himself. He laid his clothes out to be buried in. He put all the little things for the dog on my back step with the tools that he wanted me to have. I still have most of those tools today. But I realized that never in all my life that I ever witnessed a Mr. Anthony. I never told him the story of Christ. A man who was in my life, all of my life, who did everything for me, and yet I didn't have the courage to tell him about Jesus Christ. I sat there on that couch picking up the pieces of his skull, holding him in my hand, praying my, crying my heart out for his soul. But it was too late. And there will come a time in your life with the people that you work with, your own family. And, and maybe he would have never gotten saved. He had a very bad experience with the Catholic Church years and years before that turned him completely off toward God. He probably would have not. But you know what? It was my responsibility. And he's going to stand there at that judgment. The guy who took care of my little dog. The guy who built me my first cart. The guy who taught me so much about little things in life. And I'm going to have to point my finger and say, Depart from me, ye cursed and that thing, fire and brimstone. And he's going to ask me why. And I'm not going to have a very good answer. But I'll tell you what, I make a lot of dumb mistakes in life, but I usually only make them once. And I made it my goal from that point on. There's never a man that I, a woman that I ever come across that God ever puts in my path that I don't, one way or the other, get them the gospel story. I learned my lesson, but oh, it was a hard lesson. But I'm afraid we're all going to have people just like that in our lives. And it's tough. That judgment's going to be hard for unsaved people, but it's going to be hard for God's people. It really is. And I'm just telling you, there's going to be a day coming that God looks down on those eyes and God scatters all the wickedness. And you and me need to be prepared for it. I know we're not going to be judged there. I get it. Our judgment is the judgment seat of Christ. I understand it. But we're going to stand there judging with Christ and the people there that God has put in your world that you refuse to be a witness to are going to look at you and point their fingers at you and ask you why you didn't tell them. I looked to my left and I found no man. I looked to my right, and no man cared for my soul. The caring of the souls of others, based on what Jesus Christ has done for you. Every head bowed and every eye closed.